0: Hey everybody, this is Ben Bowman. Welcome back to another episode of the Oregon Bridge. That pitfall could be real. I think it's real in a lot of other states, especially when there is states that don't sit neatly. The hardest thing that I think that people don't realize is the amount of time it takes to recruit. And then if you're successful, I created a bunch of primaries. The most fun days in the Oregon political system is filing deadline because things happen. Mm-hmm. The people that were outside the Capitol and then the Mike Neerman incident, right, where he opened the door, all that sort of stuff happened. I was in the Capitol at that time.
1: All uh, right, Brian Iverson, welcome to the Oregon Bridge podcast. Thank you. I do this whenever I bring on guests that I know really well. I always forget. I'm just terrible at remembering how I met people. And I can't even remember if I met you years ago or if the first time we met was in 2022, starting on the campaigns. But that feels like the first time I met you, but I don't remember, honestly. Maybe you remember better than I do.
0: Oh, yeah. I'm. Well, I knew you when you were just a wee tight, you know, so I obviously go way back with your dad and mm-hmm. I remember seeing you as a kid and stuff occasionally at some events in Bend and things like that, that you would run around. I believe the first time I met you was when your dad beat Chris Telfer in a primary at the that's party. Right. I think you must have been, what, 16?
1: Yeah, that's about right. Around there?
0: So when we first met, but yeah, we definitely would know each other now with our connections, with your dad mm-hmm. being a minority leader, you being the chief of his staff or his office. And then you and I, of course, you know, plowing away on the campaigns last cycle together. Yep. So And it's been yeah, fun. I came we in, had a good session too.
1: I came in late because I was semi-retired, as you know, and then my dad brought me <laughs> back out of retirement from politics. No, I'm just kidding. I was taking a break and watching my kids at home. And then he came back with an offer I couldn't refuse to try to help him out. And so I got to come in late. You guys built a lot of stuff that worked really well, helped us win some seats. And that really contributed to the very exciting 2023 session. And that's where we really worked side by side in the trenches, communications and strategy and all that stuff. And so that's, I really enjoyed the relationship that we've developed and keep it going. So you seem to want to put up with me. So that's, that's always good.
0: Well, thanks, Greg. And I, I would say I agree. I think that the 23 session, at least for our staff, right, our friends inside the Senate Republican office, and I would say even other staffers in the building. I mean, we really jailed kind of as a group and, and it kind of really came together. And, you know, of course, I could be partisan enough to say that, you know, we own the deeds for that long session. We owned the walkout, we owned the messaging, you know, we kind of owned everything along the way there. And that was pretty fun. It felt like we were in an intense, you know, US Senate race, you know, every day. And it changed from morning to afternoon, and it was just crazy. It really felt like a campaign every day for like 42 days. Like mm-hmm. it was it was pretty nuts, but it was fun, and I enjoyed it.
1: And I think in getting to know you better and you know, understanding kind of your background and stuff like that, the reason I wanted to have you on was there's kind of three things that I've noticed that you are just excellent at. And so going back to 2022, the first topic I was thinking about was, candidate recruitment, because I think that a lot of times I think most people don't know what goes into the work of recruiting candidates. So like the idea sort of is sure, there are some people that go out and want to run for office. They're self starters. They're motivated. You know, maybe they're really strong in their community. But for, you know, a lot of the seats that might be more either on either side, right, where it's like more heavy Republican seat or more Democrat heavy seat, it can be actually harder to find candidates for both of those areas for both sides. And so. Ultimately, I think both caucuses in the House and both caucuses in the Senate for each of the two parties, they need to go out and recruit candidates for some seats because your goal is obviously to acquire more seats and that advances your caucus's agenda. And so you want to have as many candidates as you can just to give you as many opportunities as you can to pick up seats. So what is your mindset or your strategy when you're first looking at your blank slate of, okay, here's where I need to find some candidates. And then what are some of the like building blocks and key things you look for?
0: It's a really good question. It's one I've been been able to actually speak about this with some other states across the country as well mm-hmm. that have uh, had challenges with candidate recruiting. And as you're aware, like last cycle, I did the House recruiting and the Senate recruiting, and we had you know 60 House seats where we had Republicans, and we had all but one Senate Republican seat where we couldn't find a candidate. We gave Prozanski a pass, but uh, the rest, you know, we all had strong you know, I, I like to say strong candidates, and I believe that you can't compete if you don't have somebody even just stating the basic goals and beliefs of what the Republican Party stands for in Oregon. And That was kind of our mindset going in is let's make sure that in every seat we have somebody who's willing to stand up, go to a meeting, be in the voters pamphlet and just say, you know, there's not the Democrat way. There is another way and and then that was kind of the general philosophy of what we like to call the spread offense i think right the west coast offense as they say and when you're in the minority party our job i believe is to challenge the majority and so that has to be done even if it's downtown portland or it's in eugene or if it's in like you say these swing seats or these seats where maybe the democrats hold a significant advantage but you know, we we have to challenge there. And so, going into a governor's race, going into those sort of things, we felt that was the right strategy. And then the rubber meets the road at that point, right? So now it's like, now where do I find? It?
1: And so recruiting candidates the way you're describing it, it sounds really easy. Like a lot of people say yes, all your first meeting you find the right person. There's never any trouble. I'm being a little bit sarcastic because I know some of the challenges. Tell Tell me about like some of the pitfalls and things generically. You don't have to be specific about, you know, any candidate, but like, what are the pitfalls and things that you run into? Maybe things you wouldn't expect.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, so started off with like, we all do, I think that has done this role before me and the people that have come after me, you know, and is you you start with, okay, well, who's elected in that district, right? And you look at park board dog catcher city council mayors you know that sort of stuff you know we i tend to like mayors from a standpoint of is they've kind of dealt with some people you know hitting them with something right the speed bump in front of their house and they're at accosted at the grocery store so they've kind of been there done that kind of thing and so they don't get when they get hit in the face they don't stumble too mm-hmm. hard right don't freak out. So I find that those sort of folks are always who we go to first because you think, oh, they got a donor base. People voted for them before. Democrats did the same thing. It's no different. So we all tend to start there. The problem is, is that list tends to run dry really quickly for us, Yeah, <laughs> you know, especially in, you know, non-Republican stronghold areas. Right. So the list goes dry in a hurry. So then you start looking at who are the other people and you just you just have to spend hours. And that's really what comes down to is it's hours and hours of, you know, texting people, calling people and and just having those meetings with them and going through it and and eliciting help from many partners. You know, we had many, many friends that would, you know, everybody from the, you know, Family Farm Association would help us out, Oregon Small Business, all these groups, right? Any group that's Mm -hmm. out there. Do you have somebody in your membership base who's active in their community and they hate the direction of Oregon? And the pitfalls really come into when you're doing that wide of a, a spread. So you're looking for basically 90 candidates, right? We have 60 in the House, 30 in the Senate. And
2: yeah.
0: Actually about 75 because only half of the senators are up. That last cycle was 76. So, so as you're looking for those people, the pitfall is, is did you spend enough time vetting them? Mm-hmm. Did you spend enough time really looking at the district to who is the best fit for that district? You know, who's going to pull the right people? Those are some of the pitfalls, I think, when you're running so hard and fast and you're trying to, you know, make it all happen within that March 12th-ish deadline. That does make it difficult. The other thing that I found difficult, and this normally doesn't happen, I think it was a very rarity And I don't know, I think most people listening to this podcast probably knows, you know, that my wife was the House Republican leader Mm -hmm. and I'm working for Senator Knope on the Senate side. So I was paid by one and went home to the other. So I think the reality is, is that most times it was never one person recruiting for both the House and the Senate. That's a very rarity. Usually it's somebody chasing down Senate members and somebody chasing down House candidates and sometimes competing over the same person, right? Because you have two House districts in one Senate district. And mm-hmm. I think we were able to navigate that well, but there was definitely a couple of spots where it got a little dicey in conversations with people. Cause you'd be like, Oh, I really want her for the Senate. And you know, maybe, maybe that candidate isn't quite as strong and they can go to the house or vice versa. Right. So that was always, uh, that was always fairly difficult, but we only had a handful of those races where that was actually the case. Luckily, so it was really, we identified the Senate candidates pretty early, and then we were kind of backfilling the House candidates as we worked our way towards deadline. And But those two pitfalls are kind of interesting, because what made us successful was that those candidates within those House seats and Senate seats really work together, that they go door knocking together, they do those sort of things. And I think that's the stuff that we were looking for. The two leaders were very well aligned in their mm-hmm. direction. And that really helped out a lot, you know, but that pitfall could be real. I think it's real in a lot of other states, especially when there is states that don't sit neatly within like their house seats, don't sit neatly within their Senate seats. They can have overlap. They can have other things. There's there's some competition there. And we've definitely had it over the years on our side of the party, too.
1: Well, and I think when you have like you said, you have those two house seats that feed a Senate seat. And so, you know, sometimes, usually there's one House member that's been there longer. So if they're of the same party, right, you know, somebody's going to run to take that role, and then the next person becomes the senior House member, and then there's somebody new that feeds in there. I mean, that is, I think, a pretty normal thing is for House members to run for open Senate seats for the most part, right? Both sides of
0: the aisle, normally. (laughs) There's been a, you know, that's the statesmanship stuff that I think, for the most part, I I would say 80-90% of members within the, both parties, you know, that I've seen where there is that idea that hey if you're the senior house member you move up and Mm -hmm. you know a few times a few people like to buck those trends you know and uh just go for it and things happen and you it is what it is but that's it it is politics but i i do think the statesmanship stuff is still kind of alive I hope it is. And
1: and I think the goal for that is like, you're kind of building for your community or the idea is like, you're trying to bring people up, you know, follow you, teach them a little bit, hopefully, but you're right. I mean, it, it's also politics. And so it just gets competitive. And even sometimes when members don't want to have to pick their replacement or whatever, because of, you know, even if they're, they've said they're retiring, they don't love the idea that they're retiring stuff. It can get funny sometimes, but
0: really can. And, And when, uh, well, and the funny part is, is when I was recruiting for the Senate, because I was recruiting for the Senate before,
2: mm-hmm. I was
0: recruiting for the House. So the first goal when you're recruiting in the Senate is go find a good House member and recruit right. them to come to the other side of the chamber. So I and the, the, the Democrats do the same thing. And that so that always creates a little bit of friction. Right. When you're out there, especially if you're it's a competitive seat. And we had so many in 22 that mm-hmm. were with redistricting. We had so much stuff that was moving and changing. And I'm out there, you know, hawking House members like, hey, you ready to go to the Senate? You know, and uh, I did grab a few of them that did yep. make that move, you know, to to run for the Senate, i.e. Suzanne Weber and Raquel Moore Green, you know, so two of them. And then both those were competitive seats mm-hmm. that they left behind. And that definitely is a, it wasn't a pitfall this cycle, but I could see how it could be a pitfall, yeah. you know, for sure, so... But I, I think we found good candidates to go in behind those people for those house seats. We were able to retain the house seat that that Suzanne Weber left there on the coast. And then, you know, ultimately, I think Raquel, I, I would blame that one on redistricting. The Democrats kind of knew that house seat there in South Salem. You know, all you had to do is get that thing over on the west side of I-5 and it was blue. So, yeah, the, things went the way they went. But it was it was an interesting recruiting process. I think everybody's got a different one. The, the hardest thing that I think that people don't realize is the amount of time it takes to recruit. And then if you're successful, I created a bunch of primaries <laughs> because, you know, you you're sitting there trying to convince people to run and, and, you know, this is important and this is, you know, and they're like, yeah. and all of a sudden they're on board. And then another, you know, you have, you have four or five different conversations, you know, mm-hmm. with people within a house seat or a Senate seat and then uh two of them decide they want to run and they don't want to back down right so you
1: that's that's hard because i think a stuff. lot of people think you can just get recruit one and then wait for them to make up their mind but people don't all make up their minds at the same time and so somebody might be sitting and waiting around for a couple of months yes. and you want to have a backup plan right but the backup plan maybe doesn't want to be the backup plan so yeah <laughs> i can see that and, being a challenge
0: i mean the when well, you know this reagan because it's one of the the most fun days in the Oregon political system is filing deadline. Absolutely. Filing day. Like it's just a blast. I mean, you're cuz things happen mm-hmm. on that last day that you weren't accounting for and it it's always been interesting. There's always a surprise every cycle. You know, I remember I went down there my first time in 1998, I believe, for that filing deadline and was hooked ever since. You know, like you I kind of popped out of politics for, you know, 7-8 years while I was raising my boys and stuff like that and going to corporate comms, but coming back into it reminded me of those days, you know, back mm-hmm. in the late nineties, early two thousands, when you would go down there and it was just a blast, man. And it was, uh, and it still is, it's just um, a heck of a fun day. And cause that filing deadline is real. And, and like I said, I had, I mean, actually we could probably a good one to really illustrate this. Cause I like stories to illustrate leader Helfrich now. So Jeff Elfrich ran two times before, right? He won one, lost the last two, wasn't going to run, right? So it was Democrat-controlled, Anna, what was her last name? I think it was Anna Williams. Williams, yes. So redistricted, you know, looks about the same. So we're thinking, well, we got to go recruit a candidate. So I go and recruit a candidate, Dr. James Bourne, you know, great guy. You know, we went through the process and all that sort of stuff. About five days before filing deadline seven days somewhere around there and williams quits (laughs) decides she's not running again (laughs) remember her and uh uh, power and a few other ones just yeah we're not getting paid enough and we're just we're resigning and it was like Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden you know Helfrich, in that point has lost the last two elections against her decide he was like well this is a game changer and
1: open seat is different it wasn't a game
0: changer right it's an Mm -hmm. open seat now so and then and then you tell your candidate you recruited you're like i sorry (laughs) what are you you supposed to do you know and so and jeff went on the win, which is great that was a great pickup for jeff i was super excited for him you know i that district is i think moving in our direction i think those things Mm -hmm. look well for him going forward and and he's done well obviously he's ascended himself up to leaders so but it's a really good example of kind of how things there at the end can really be fluid and yep you know and i uh This might lead into kind of our next chain of thought you and I talked about before, but you go out and you get people to run. And it's not like the caucus is choosing this person over that person. There were a lot of those primaries we didn't even weigh into on any level. We just said, you know, hey, I'm sorry, there's a couple people running. And, you know, I talked to all of them. They, They both sound great to me and we just didn't do anything. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think there's some we did, but that was because we probably weren't involved in recruiting the person that, you know, filed. So uh, it doesn't make that person bad. It just makes, you know, we went down this path and usually those person never called us or, you know, they didn't like what I had to say or they didn't like what a senator had to say or the leader on the house side. So that's the reality of it. Mm -hmm. You know, It can be tough, but you just have to I still believe I'll go back to my original thought process is that we have to challenge in every district. We have to have a voice. We have to be there in every district. We have to just say there is a different way. And especially in the wake of everything we're seeing today, I really think this is a more time critical than even 2022. I think a lot of people thought there was a wave in 2022. We had a wave. Mm -hmm. We can get into that a little bit later, but I think we had a wave. It just wasn't, it wasn't this crazy, you know, 20 point wave. It was, you know, a decent nine, nine and a half point wave for us. And, uh, We capitalized that on spots where we had effective candidates and came up short in a couple other spots where we had great candidates and they literally run up against the top of that wave and the surfboard just kind of hit the sand, you know, as they said. Yeah.
1: Well, I think as you were alluding to one of the other topics that you and I talk about, that just seems to come up pretty often. I think that, well, first of all, back to your point you're out there doing as much as you can. You know, everybody's working, you know, sometimes together, sometimes not on recruiting, because everyone's trying to influence the political process. At the end of the day, that's what it's about, right? The candidates that get elected have the most influence over what happens in the legislature, because that's mostly what we're talking about. But it's true for Congress, it's true for governor and everything else, local offices. So everyone's just trying to influence the political process for their, you know, for their own goals, whether it's a business trying to make it easier to do business or, uh, you know, another a group that wants a law to be changed because they think it's, you know, not just or whatever it is. Right. And so I think a lot of people just go out there, who don't know what goes into this process. They look at it and they say, oh, you know, the people don't get to choose who represents us. And no one person has control over all this stuff. Not even a small group of people, as much as they try, is going to be able to control every facet of this stuff. Right. But there are some people out there that feel like that's how it is. And so then you get into this kind of thing where this these sort of, you know, I, I'm i just going to classify them as people who are more in the lane of conspiracy theorists or just haven't done the work to understand what goes into it. And so they have these like extremist views. And so now you have these candidates, really, and then these, you know, folks sometimes that try to get involved with the local party to get the influence that they want. And they just feel so far outside of what the mainstream Republican or mainstream Democrat thinks. And you're like, where does this come from? Where do these feelings come from? Where do these candidates come from? Why do they say what they say? Right. And I don't think you and I have figured it out yet. Otherwise, we'd be making a lot more money for somewhere else telling everybody how it works. But I mean, what is your kind of thoughts about where we're at now? Both parties have kind of worked to get more conservative and more liberal. And now it seems like maybe we've gone a little bit As far as we can go without causing a lot of problems.
0: Well, I really think that in regards to the party structures, we've always had a challenge. I mean, I've been involved with on some facet or another in and out with the ORP, I think since about 2000 or so.
1: That's the Uh, uh, Oregon Republican Party for anyone not familiar with the acronym.
0: Yes. The Oregon Republican Party. I think, yeah, I was even a Kevin Mannix when he was chair appointed me to chair the PR committee back in, I don't know, back in the day. Let's just say that. I was about your age, maybe. Uh, So we've always struggled with getting younger people involved. We've always struggled with partly because of a, the campaign finance rules in Oregon mm-hmm. allow most of the money to not have to flow through the party. So independent expenditures, things like that. But also part of it is, is I think parties in and of them themselves is difficult. As we've gotten more extreme, like if we want to say, if we think we're more extreme, of course we think both sides are more extreme, I think on ideology, yeah. but those are the people that tend to be involved in the party, right? So mm-hmm. you're not going to get, Quote unquote. And of course you and I both know I hate the term mainstream, but Republican that <laughs> usually means yeah. somebody that wants to turn their back on Republicans. <laughs> but I think um I just think in general, what I see happening is the more local you get, the more partisan things have become on the party structure side mm-hmm. because they don't have that direct connection with you know, especially if they have representatives that are Democrats and things like that, they don't have that. So they're they're going to tend to go a further right than they would if you have a representative who's in a purple area or in, a, in some of those areas. So I think the natural progression of our party is that we're kind of moving right. And then I think we'll move back a little bit more towards... The center, especially when we start talking about economy and taxes and things like that. Mm-hmm. The social issues tend to move away. I think COVID brought us really far over to one extreme. I think that was a reaction in Oregon that, you know, you didn't have that in Texas. You didn't have it in Oklahoma. You didn't have it mm-hmm. in, you know, Idaho and some of these places where, you know, you already were fully Republican controlled and they didn't really do a lot of the masking and the other things that really incensed Republicans, right? Right. So
1: if anything, it was the Democrat who were went crazy because they thought they should be locked down and they weren't right You yeah. almost have the opposite feeling there which i think is funny yeah i think about it and a i lot. think
0: you know and i'll, I'll remind you and just made me pop in my head like it was yeah. three years ago yesterday we were in special session in salem december 21st 2020 mm-hmm. when the i think my friends on the democrats and i like to call them friends when i talk bad about them they think that was the trial run for January 6th in Washington, D.C., right? That's when right. We had yes. The, the mm-hmm. people that were outside the Capitol and then the Mike Neerman incident, right, where he opened the door and all that sort of stuff happened. I was in the Capitol at that time with Vicki and. And I wasn't doing anything at the point. I mean, it was really a really special session. I don't even remember what it was about, to tell you the truth. I don't know why Governor Brown called us in. Probably had something to do with the rioters downtown Portland or something, I'm sure. I'm You're going down to – uh, I'm,
1: I'm looking it up on all this right now to see if I yeah, can. But
0: the reality was is, is while you look it up, the reality was is people at that time, especially Donald Trump, didn't get reelected. You know, uh, we had all this masking still happening and all this sort of school shutdown stuff, everything's still happening in Oregon. And people were just angry and they weren't I don't think they, they weren't necessarily angry yet, even Democrats or Republicans, they were angry at the system. Right. Because they believe that Governor Brown and that the system failed them and mm-hmm. they were going to take it out on anybody they could. And those people that were there at the Capitol that, you know, at, at our Salem Capitol, you know, they were just angry. I mean, I guess they were probably Trump fans. I didn't know any of them. So just <laughs> disclaimer, disclaimer. <laughs> and, you know, what was funny about that one? And I'll I'll deep dive and you guys can. I There's a video that I filmed from Vicky's office at the time of where they were breaking through the windows. And it's up on most of the coin news and all those ones. They picked it up when I sent it out. But it was crazy because it was only legislators allowed in there. And um, spouses, basically, are significant chiefs of staff. And so, and there was like two cops in the whole building, mm-hmm. eight troopers. This is before metal detectors. So yeah. I had my concealed carry. So I had my weapon on. Me. Mm-hmm. And so did Rep. Stark and Rep. David Brock Smith. I think the three of us. We had a real discussion that day when they were breaking through those windows mm-hmm. a real disgust. And there was, and I'm, I kid you not, there was like two troopers in the building and I went down to the garage and all of a sudden there was troopers coming in through the basement and guys yeah. were like, strapping their stuff up as they're coming into the building because there was only two people there, yeah. uh, you know, and it was scary, not, not scary from, I didn't think these people were going to, but they're all carrying guns too. Right. So it was scary, but ultimately it got resolved. And, you know, I think, but there was just frustration. I think it was barred out of frustration and I don't think those people were delineating the difference between Republicans or Democrats. I think it was I, really just system. I, right? ju-
1: I just texted somebody today, misallocated, anger is like the number one thing that I think is the most problem with our political system right now. And this may go back to, I mean, I remember learning, of course I was homeschooled. So my civics education was like literally going to the Capitol and stuff. Right. And, and, uh, you know, my dad teaching me how a bill became a law, but we it
0: couldn't ask for much of a better teacher. A hundred percent, hundred
1: percent but there's way more steps when he's doing it. It's not like it goes to committee and then it goes to, fo- there's way more steps. There's lots of stuff. You you the so, uh, of yeah, that, that's the political process. That's right. That's right. Got to talk to everybody on the, ch- on the committee. Got to talk to all the stake. No, you but, work out,
0: then you walk out and then you make it better. <laughs> and <you> come back. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh man. Uh we're gonna get emails about that. Um no. So Sorry, but, Senator. <laughs> uh, that is, I think, and now i I'm derailed my train of thought here God. with our, with our hilariousness. Message. That's right. Uh but I got a, I sent a text and I said the misallocated anger is no one problem. And I think it kind of goes back to, I mean, I was obviously benefited from a really good civics education that, and even the basic civic education that I got in the curriculum sort of taught me. And I fielded so many phone calls as a staffer. Someone called the other day about wanting to tell you know our office that they don't want Trump banned from the ballot because they saw what happened in Colorado. And I just talked her through it. I was like, hey, I totally understand why you might think that and why that'd be your opinion. We won't get any input on that. She said, oh, tell me more about that. I called Merkley and White and I said, they won't either. You know, the people who will get input, the secretary of state, probably, because she's going to be the one who determines yes or no on the ballot. And then there's a private group that's suing. And then the judges is to hear the case, right? Those are the ones in our system that will have influence over that opinion. The legislature won't vote for who's on the ballot. They'd have to change the law. They can, but it's it's unlikely. And so I talked her through it. And she really, she understood what I was saying. She was like, oh, that makes sense. Who do I, and then I, I gave her the right directions on where to call to put that, you know, and will her call have an impact on that decision? Maybe, maybe not. But At the end of the day, she knew where to direct her frustration about this thing that she cared about. And I think, you know, I think civics education is obviously a part of it. I think, you know, communication, there's always discussions about how can we improve communication between the local political parties on both sides of the aisle and they're because I think Democrats experience this frustration too with being unable to communicate with their base, right? Which is like, everyone thinks that, oh, the base is who holds you accountable, the base who gets you elected. And it's like, the, sometimes the base is the one that doesn't understand the issue, right? And you're trying to explain it to them and those lines of communication aren't as developed as they need to be. And so I think like if we were, you know, I think maybe we can communicate better. I think they can also, you know, listen and ask questions better, right? There's a give and a take there in that line of communication. It has to be two ways. But you can see where the communication breakdown happening results in people having anger and not knowing where to direct that, right? And because our system of government is so distributed and it's gotten bigger than when it started, it's hard to know where to send that stuff sometimes, right? And I think that's a part of it.
0: I think you nailed it. I mean, I really do. I think that the frustration where people go when they're frustrated and they see something that they're upset about. And they want to complain, and they want somebody to listen to them, right? And yep. then if they don't get any feedback, they're just going to keep going until they find somebody to tell them. And I think you gave that person great advice, right? It is the Secretary of State. I mean, there's really nothing. Yep. You know, I mean, there is something, but nothing right away that's going to happen that's going to change that. I think that's a very interesting dynamic with President Trump. I think once you try to drown out democracy, though, I think that that's going to backlash in Colorado. And if I was helping out the Colorado Republicans, I would just be, you've now just, you know, created a great thing to hammer your friends on the other side over by drowning out democracy, by not even allowing somebody ballot access. Oh, yeah. Measure 113, kind of like that. But uh, uh, we, (laughs) I, I think that that's the end of the day is I do believe that the voters should vote. The voters should vote who they want to represent them. Yep and there's always there always felt like you know me growing up learning civics and even you know I have a political science degree from you know the people's republic of portland state and even there you know having that ability to vote was felt like it was a responsibility and i think if you get the government that you deserve so if you vote for that government if you vote for that state rep that city councilor that mayor you know you you should take pride in who you voted for and also hold them accountable right so you should be able to vote for that person and and all this other stuff that we're trying to do block this person not let that person on there you know the reality of like i'll bring it back to the state level because the trump stuff he's only going to get blocked in states that aren't going to vote for him anyway so i don't it's not going to matter but it becomes a good wedge issue for the local guys i think i think the democrats sure. are just reading that one if i were to tell them i think it's a dumb idea i think that you know, they're, that's not good for your middle. If you're the middle trying to get the middle voter, the soccer mom, I don't think you, I think you'd rather have Trump on the ballot. <laughs> I think it probably helps the Democrats more than hurts them. There's a, you know, but uh, regardless, I'm not here to help Democrats win elections. But uh, I think that on a state level, bringing it back just a real quick on measure 113, we don't need to talk mm-hmm. on that one too much, but most of the time you're going to get senators from a red district that is going to vote another Republican. And I, So it doesn't really matter. So at the end of the day, let your voters hold the blue, you know, the Democrat senators accountable and the Republican senators accountable. If they want them to walk out, then so be it. Right. I mean, change the quorum laws. They didn't want to change the quorum laws because, you know, that was going to be slightly harder to pass. And I believe somehow they wanted to punish us. And and I don't and I think they miscalculated resolve on on a certain level and I think you know people are there to represent their district and if you come from a plus 30 republican district and there is a walkout opportunity on the table against something that you just find morally heinous why would you show up you know when you have that ability and I think that's where Mm -hmm. that's where I think the cross-section of the far right extreme side kind of gets into us right when they really start to really dive into that hard stuff because the 98% of the other bills we probably figured out right you find some you may not like them but you're like oh we'll figure it out you know but really there's came down to I don't know you probably know better than me you're the legislative expert but I was probably you know five to ten bills really that seemed like there was major negotiation happening the last Week of session.
1: So, yeah. And I think some of that was too, like some bills did get delayed and killed just because of the lockout. There wasn't time to deal with them and they'll come up in future sessions. So that shortened it a little bit. But yeah, I think overall, probably not more than, you know, 20 or 30 key bills in an entire session that people are really have any sort of serious heartburn about from start to finish. And of course, there's more, but a lot of those die in committee right
0: um delay is a strategy too delay delay about. is a
1: strategy it's 100% it's so funny because it's and i'm sure people have heard this over and over <laughs> again but then again we, you and i and others talk about all this stuff but not on a podcast so i want people to like no, hear the I same don't. arguments Kids. of course came up during the previous walkouts that you know Kate Brown and Pierre Courtney all talked about walkouts were a legitimate strategy when they were in the minority to delay things they hated like Republicans passing redistricting maps they didn't like, right? That was that was morally well, reprehensible issue. to them, right? And it was like if that's the issue they chose and agreed upon, then that was the issue, and voters, you know, get to determine those things at the end. And I I agree with you on that. I think I think if there's a candidate. And I won't be specific about candidates, but if there's a candidate who gets convicted, it might be a different story. And it's in you know the whatever the Fourteenth Amendment or whatever there is, It's not the Fourteenth, yeah, but the one 14th, of the amendments. Yeah, yeah, it's a subsection suing, of the Fourteenth Amendment. Yeah, they're I mean, suing under right. There's like there's a dis- little bit of discussion, but right now it's only been applied to people who were seditionist Confederates, right? And so it's yeah, like yeah, civil war so, I mean,
0: it's uh,
1: so yeah. So that's the question the Supreme Court would probably have to answer at that point, right? And now you're talking about interpretation and all that stuff, but. Which I love.
0: I mean, I'm not a I'm not a scholar by any means, you know. But I think that idea, you know, for people who love the Constitution, you know, seeing these pieces that were put in there getting challenged in Supreme Court is it is interesting. You know, I I think there there is something to it. I mean, if he is found federally, you know, uh, whether it's Georgia or one of the cases that worked through and he's actually guilty, right? I do find that interesting. Is is how does that play out and But that's our system of government and and ultimately that should be done peacefully. Like let the should, checks and balances uh, work. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we've yeah. seen it with, uh, I mean, let's go back to our state, right? Measure 114 that barely passed, you know, because uh, mm-hmm. people, what's funny about it, and this is what I was like, so somebody on their ballot voted on measure 113. They voted, what, 65, 35 or so for measure 113 to yep. not let senators run again or representatives. The next one was measure 114, which was the gun control one, which barely passed. Like 15. Barely passed. Mm-hmm. If, I don't know, what, 10,000 voters, 20,000 voters.
1: It's like 15.5% to half percent That's crazy. So
0: they literally went to the next, so they voted yes, and then went to the next thing. And and it was split. And, the, yeah. and, and, and then the, the Supreme Court, or the Circuit Court, after it got sued and everything, said, hey, this is unconstitutional and blah, blah, blah. So I think what we'll find is hopefully is, is you won't see the activists on the left you know, come back and try to just put in a 114 that we killed last session. And then they'll just bring in their own version because they didn't like what the court said. It's like, well, go back and rewrite your measure, put it back on the ballot and try again, you know, find the things that were unconstitutional. And I, yep. I find that what, what I don't like about Oregon and I'll, another one that we walked out on, right, short session 2020 cap and trade, yeah, I think the great example of that one was we were, you know, it got nullified, the executive orders, Kate Brown. So they come back, you know, Vicki walked out, my wife walked out. She was in undisclosed location. <laughs> they
1: were And pretty, they, pretty newish to the legislature, right? At that point, yeah, or she'd yeah, served one term. She only
0: there probably six, seven months at that point. Yeah. First session. Oh my goodness. You know, and, uh, and hmm. all of a sudden there, she's called me one night and she's like, I'm out of here, Shelly, Christine, and blah blah, and a few other people that remain unnamed. But uh, we're heading out of here, and they're in trucks, and they're, you know, heading south. Like this is when they actually ran away, mm-hmm. right? Where we were worried that Governor Brown was going to send state police after him, and yep. so I'm booking hotel rooms, and or you know, we're coordinating everything and getting them out of the state and stuff. And uh, you know, they ended up coming back at the end of that as well. But it killed that, and then Governor Brown just signs executive orders and just right. says, "Well, we don't really care what." legislature says so and that that's what i think most people i i would hope that most even rational democrats are upset about is is if we were a red state you would hate it if we were to take executive orders and just override what the hell happened at the legislature i mean they i think the left would just they would go they would go insane they would be you know and and i feel like if they're going to do it to us you know on the right like they have a little bit more compassion for for our side of it. And also have some, I think at the end of the day, have some levity towards the process. Mm -hmm. And I think the process matters. I think the process of the legislature, I think is a beautiful thing. And I think this is what we argued about us walking out this last session was that the process is getting usurped by lawyers and people that don't want to go through the process. They don't Mm. want to go through the process of having committee hearings and hearing somebody that doesn't agree with them. Right. And, and we're seeing more and more of that, which I believe when you have a majority that becomes more extreme, you know, and they just keep pushing down their ideals, the other people on the other side are just going to get further extreme on their end of it. So it one doesn't beget the other. So, you know, and I think the mm-hmm. same thing happens in Texas, right? I mean, you look the other way, right? The
1: Texas mean, Democrats. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I think we see it on both sides of the aisle. I just think and am going back to your whole point, like, Nowhere where to direct your anger, know where to direct what you need to do and then go after it. And that's all we can really tell people to do. And, and then I say, run for office. Right. I mean, that's, <laughs> that was going to be my next like, one. You know, I, there's a lot of, I tweeted a bunch today that are, or well that haven't run yet, but I should tweet all the open seats that are out right. there. We don't have a Republican in that are open. You know, I'm not recruiting people for the house uh, this cycle, but uh You know, we should make sure we have people running and and saying that stuff and, you know, stand up. You have a voice when you put your name on the line, you know.
1: Yep. And I think that's the hard part, too, is it's like, do you want to run and be part of the process and standing for your values? Or there are some of these that take a strategy uh, in different seats where they run and they're there to attack Republicans and they're supposedly running as a Republican. And it's like, I get it, I, you know, been in primaries. You and I have both done primaries. A lot of people have done primaries and I you get that. And at the end of the day, it's like, we have different visions. We're going to disagree about whatever the things are, or maybe we agree on 90% anyway, and we're still doing the primary. What's the point? Well, sometimes it's just a different, you know, it could be a local issue, could be something else. But at the end of the day, then the voters are picking. And if you're going there and you're going to run and, and your only goal is to attack Republicans and not even the Republicans you're running against, and then you get blown up In your election, it's like, hmm, maybe you should take a message away from that, that your message is misdirected. And I think that that's the other thing, too, is it's like there's a lot of people with misdirected anger. And then there's a few who I think are just bad actors who they're trying to deceive people. They're trying to become, use this process, become famous. It's pretty easy to access the ballot in Oregon. So a lot of people do it, some for the right reasons, some for the wrong reasons. And so you have these people who are out there just lobbing bombs for nothing and they're not trying to contribute anything. And I think that's where I get frustrated. I bet you get frustrated with that. And those people just need to go away. They need to get a hobby.
0: You know what they want? They want attention, Reagan. They're not even running. Mm -hmm. They actually Mm -hmm. don't even... Most people that I've seen run for office that I've recruited or talked to, you know, a lot of the times it's people that email and say, hey, I want to run for office. And I'm like, hey, that's great. You know, where do you live? And we start talking about it and they you know, they're frustrated about something within the political system that they want to run for office. And I, there's gotta have a basis, right. And the people that want to run just so they can have attention, just Mm -hmm. so they can gain another 10 Twitter followers or another, you know, go on Facebook and rant. And if they don't get attention from the left, because they run in districts that are super far left and you could, you know, you could scream fire in an auditorium and nobody would run away. Right. So <laughs> and then what they do is they said, well, geez, if I can't get attention that way, I'm just going to turn and attack Republicans. Mm-hmm. And then and we found that we talked earlier about the ORP and I it's always been a constant issue with the ORP is this idea that, you know, as soon as somebody ascends to becoming chair, then everybody starts attacking The chair and and it's like anytime you know leader cano became the leader then all of a sudden people attack him for the decisions he makes and the same thing on Mm -hmm. the house side you know like we're we're focused on and we've always been and you know this and everybody and the guys that came before me girls that came before me and in my role and i hope ones that come after we're focused on one thing and that is majority Mm -hmm. because i can't we can't change a single thing until we have majority we can water things down we can make things better we can kill some stuff we can try to hold the line we can message this message that but it doesn't happen overnight you know and and if what how it happens is that we all get in the same boat we grab an oar and we start oaring and if you're not in the same boat with us oaring then you're kind of more my problem
2: mm-hmm. than
0: you are you know my friend and and so we either need to throw you out of the boat <laughs> You know, or uh, go find your own boat. And the problem is, there's been a few of those people out there. There's been a few groups that they've literally made a living off of just attacking Republicans. Yeah. And and going because that's a it's their business model. You know, instead of saying why don't you be supportive, and then when you're supportive and you didn't quite get what you wanted, then you just turn turn and start attacking us. And I just don't think that's the the right way to go about it. I don't think that ultimately even they feel it's the right way to go about it. But yep. I think they just want attention, and I just think that that stuff is is just sad. And I think some of those people, sadly, they've seen get to those places of attention, i.e., like Matt Gates, Lauren mm-hmm. Bobart, You know, some of these ones that they see nationally
1: yeah. that
0: have all of a sudden get this crazy amount of attention because they attacked another Republican, right? And and I think so. They think, oh wow, well I want to do that too, right? I mean, it was kind of kind of that trump mantra it's like well I could be like Trump too and I can hammer down I'm like listen <laughs> that there's only one trump you know and and the people that try to act like Trump that run for office I'm like listen you're you're not a billionaire and trump has a he's got a masterful way of handling media that people don't ever give they just think you can just be loud and obnoxious and you can be like Trump and they're like Dude, this guy is skilled in a way that you will never ascend.
1: What's kind of interesting about him, too, is you talk about him as a unique personality. Like, he's being himself 100%, and people trying to imitate him are not being themselves, and that's the key difference yes. among other things. If they were themselves, they would be more successful. And Trump, I mean, he was on The Apprentice, right? And I think that... If he didn't know it before, then that's where he understood and learned how the media operated. It could have have been before that, but I think that's what he's most well-known for, and that's where his basically unlimited name ID comes from, right? The other thing that he has that most people don't have. And so, yes, I agree. He is a strategy and a goal, and I think that's interesting too. It's like I will say this, and then I'll eat my own words at the same time. When I think you mentioned social media as being part of that attention-seeking, a little bit of a problem, right? The idea with social media was communication, and allowing people to communicate from all over the world about different topics and stuff like that who don't know each other, really. I mean, you can connect with your friends on Facebook, but ultimately, the goal is to connect you with people you didn't know. And that was good. But the flip side of that is the people who are just using it for attention. Like most of the time, when I post something there, sometimes I am just having a good time. But most of the time, I have like a goal when I'm posting, I'm posting some important information for a reason or whatever, right? And these guys don't have a goal except for Attention! I think you know not yeah. to get all boomer on social media, but maybe some people need yeah. to unplug, or maybe we need to shut it down for a couple of weeks. Well, if you
0: follow me on Twitter, Reagan, you see my <laughs> war. On public, my war on public transportation is real. It's legit. It's not for fun. Yes. i'm Just yeah. kidding. I, that's. I agree. I think it's some of those things. It's for fun, and some of those things we're trying to convey
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know, information. And I, I'm with you, but I, I, you should take it as you know. It's fun to kind of poke fun when I see. Mm-hmm you know, Merkley's staffer do use his Twitter account. I doubt that that's Merkley, but you know, using uh, like posting something, you're like, Oh, it's just blatantly political. And it's you like to poke fun at him and just say, you're silly. I mean, I don't go on there and say, Oh my God, you're a horrible person. And you suck and drop a bunch of F bombs right on Twitter. Cause what's the point of that? Like, there, you know, yeah. it's just, it's not even clever. Like I, I at least enjoy clever tweets. If anything, I enjoy cl- clever yeah, banter something funny you know? yes yeah i enjoy that part i don't care what side's doing it i think it's almost i kind of enjoy the, the cleverness of it and, and also quite frankly i mean so there's some democrats i uh, that i follow out there that you know they got some pretty decent ideas but you mm-hmm. know they get drowned out as well by their left if they put out you know uh something and i you know it's like wow and i like you know, like mike portland i think is one of your best friends right or right
1: i i I, it's funny i've replied to them a a couple of times and (laughs) i'm not i will tell you i'm not a a biking infrastructure advocate necessarily but i do find some of the stuff that they do interesting i've also found some of their tactics to be not super awesome at all they seem to struggle getting people on board but um with their agenda mostly because in oregon gets really freaking cold and no one wants to ride a bike when it's cold So the climate's really against them, but if they get all on board for changing the climate to be really sunny all the time, then we can have a conversation about bikes as being our primary mode of transportation.
0: Um, I would agree. I well, I only bring that one up because it's fun. one of the things that I, you know, and I'm not elected official, but I don't believe that bike lanes should share the same lane as a car. Mm-hmm. I just don't believe that this idea of sharing space, e-bikes, all this sort of stuff, you know, accidents are going to happen. That's just the reality of human nature. And the reality is if I'm in my car and you're in your bike, you lose. Yep. You lose, I win. And so I have had my bouts with those guys where I do agree with him on that. I don't know if we should be spending a billion dollars and putting a whole second story bridge over, you know, the Columbia for people that want to ride their bike from Vancouver to Portland. I'm with you on that. Yeah. But, but I, I do think that there's, you know, sharing the same space, is probably yeah. not conducive to everybody. And, and I, it's so funny when you see people that aren't from Oregon and they go to Portland and I've been, there, you know, I go up to Portland enough for work and everything like that. And you talk to mm-hmm. people and they're like, what does the green stuff mean on the pavement? <laughs> you know? And I sit there and I'm like, well, that's kind of a bike lane. And they're like, well, can I drive in it? And I'm like, well, I don't know, really. I feel like you can, mm-hmm. but how do you make a right turn? Like, you know, like I, it's, it is crazy, right? Cause you're trying to share this space and, it's just uh, it, it is an odd, it's an oddity, but uh, yeah, and they're having the same e-bike problem now with you know kids hopping on those e-bikes, and
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know it's not going to become a, a good thing.
1: Yeah, you've got the Mac, and in Portland you've got Max Trains, you've got some actually separate, different kind of like trolleys that are a little bit like the yeah. max you also have regular buses you also have cars you also have you know large freight that's trying to move through portland you also have bikes so trying to layer all these train uh, did i say trains already i don't know yeah. uh well we all we both know each other
0: public transportation is really just homeless transportation so it's a way for people to for they can move the homeless people from gresham to Hillsboro to the different areas to get free stuff so I'm not a fan of public transportation. I think that uh, it's not safe. You should not be on it. You should, uh, and if you want to join my my war against public transportation, I think there was a time, I used to ride, I lived out in Gresham where I grew mm-hmm. up, and I rode the MAX train to Portland State every day and home, yep. and I'd sit on there and do my homework and stuff, and it was great, and Man, you'd be hard pressed. What was it what those reports that like every train had fentanyl in it? I mean, you know, it's just crazy.
1: Yeah, most ninety or hundred percent tested positive for meth, and then some for fentanyl too. It's just, and it's like it could be the facilitation of the public transportation. I mean, I think you have again, it's a change in ideology where the goal is no longer the transportation. The goal is to eliminate the car, and so. They've lost their focus. And if they're focused on operating just a really positive train experience, 100%, I have no doubt there are people who work in public transportation. That's their goal. But the leadership of it and the people who want to fund it and stuff like that, their goals, I think, are the problem on that front. It's so funny that we ended up on public transportation. But <laughs> at Brian G. Iverson on yeah, Twitter, right. if you uh, want to take a look at his many hot takes on public transportation, some of which I agree with.
0: But not all, right?
1: Yeah. We, we, Maybe we, not we, all of them. We, I don't know. I just yeah, didn't want to blanket approve.
0: Disagree. Blink
1: and approve on all levels, of them so we do sometimes bit, yeah. the last topic we got a couple more minutes we're yeah. at almost an hour i think oh. i had to restart my computer so we didn't start at one and i usually i've been getting on bowman who isn't uh isn't here because his podcasts are too long and now here i am finally with i've brought one of my best friends on the podcast and now i understand ben's problem so ben i'm gonna eat my words there on that one i mean um, ben's lucky bit.
0: he's not here i mean if ben mm-hmm. was here i'm sorry right to step on, but if ben was here i mean we We'd probably be here for two and a half hours, you know, and I know, it, I'm not sure you can handle my heat that I'd bring. Ben's but, political but,
1: career would be over. There'd yeah. be so much footage of this. He wouldn't be able to run again for sure. And uh, Luckily, this Ben, uh I'll just tell Ben this and he'll hear it when the podcast airs. I think, ben, Brian, you might be the first podcast of the new year. So we're a little bit ahead of the game Happy finally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ben, this is what you get for not answering my phone calls as much as you used to now that you're important. So now we're gonna take shots at you, but
0: uh, well, I think you know, I'll say this about Representative Bowman is I you know, I think he's a he's obviously I would put him in the in the liberal camp, right? But I think he's a thoughtful. Yeah, I
1: think he might be a liberal. I'm I gotta check that out. Yeah, I'll I, think check it, I think
0: he's thoughtful. I think he's uh pragmatic. I think he listens. I mean, it doesn't mean that I'm he's gonna agree with things that the other folks say, but I know that at least, you know, in my my seeing him through the Capitol, he's always been super pleasant, super nice and and I think that he has got some interesting takes on school boards mm-hmm. and that sort of stuff that I think even us would uh, agree with on on the right. So there are, you know, there, there's ways right. we're not going to agree on abortion. We're not going to agree on guns and stuff like the that. The kicker but Ben wants to steal. Yeah, well, too bad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not getting the kicker. Two-thirds vote. It's not happening. That's right. <laughs> I don't know how much they can try, but it's not gonna happen. Reagan. It's not I happening. hear there's some
1: there's some polling coming out that's about to show the kicker has like over seventy percent approval. So yes, Oregonians yeah. love their kicker. Yeah. So
0: well, you know, and they also hate sales tax and they hate mm-hmm. there's a lot of things about Oregon that I think has made us slightly different than California and Washington that has allowed us to stay a, a little bit more in the purple realm and not go full on. You know, to the left, and I, you know, to the chagrin of I think some of those folks that want us to be like California and Washington, we've been able to just beat that back just enough because of those unique things that make Oregon, Oregon. You know, I think there are some unique things there. And I hope that our Republicans, you know, that are out there, you know, doing God's work, you know, uh, running for city council, running for state rep, or whatever it is that you're doing to help your community, remember that you know, the the Oregon way wasn't always just Democrat policies. I mean, it wasn't just the bottle bill, you know, mm-hmm. it was a lot of these other things. And I also think the bottle bill's great. Like, I don't, you know, have an issue with that. I think it's, you know, it was a great idea. It was unique. It was different. And uh, there's a lot of things that make Oregon, Oregon. There's a lot of things What I love about Oregon that probably, you know, people on the left love about it too, you know, and uh, the mountains, the seas and all that sort of stuff. And we just have to focus on that Delivering the message of lower taxes, local control, you know, let the communities and then, uh, you know, and then also just moving Portland to Washington we will be fine.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that is uh i agree there's no need for greater idaho just lesser oregon a lot of people yes. who don't like greater idaho you think oh yeah we're safe from that no they just believe in lesser oregon so we'll see we'll see on that one but well, somebody uh, who lives
0: in the greater idaho you know it's not, uh-huh. it's not a horrible idea from my perspective but uh, sure. yeah there's a there's a lot of issues with it i i in regards to moving borders that much
2: yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah, there would
0: be pretty dramatic. It would be a lot of lot of issues with it, you know. I don't know, I, but it, what it does is beg the discussion of you know the rural urban divide, which is real, all those sort of things, you know, that we fight about over here in Eastern Oregon and and stuff. But uh, it's the reality is fine. But the reality is that the the, the divide has gotten bigger,
2: mm-hmm.
0: a lot smaller, and and I wish our friends in the valley where most of the Democrats reside would understand that just because you like it that way doesn't mean that I have to like it that way. Right. You know, that's the problem.
1: Yep. Yeah. Well, I think we'll just end it here. I don't know, Brian, you, I wanted to, I, my last topic was branding and stuff, but I feel like that's a, that's like a whole separate podcast, Republicans
2: yeah, and on. branding.
1: Yeah. We can do another one. So I'll have you on next time and we'll, we'll talk about candidate branding and stuff like that. Cause you've done, I mean, you alluded to it, you've done so much marketing, marketing, and stuff like that, both for corporations and candidates. And I think that that like politics, all so much of politics is just like communication and marketing. And I, don't, I think people don't understand that part of it either. So we'll do, we'll do another one of those sometime next year.
0: Be great. Yeah, it'd be great to talk about branding. I think it's uh, really the reality for most candidates that are out there. And whether you want to just run for office or you want to eventually run for president, you got to be thinking about your brand from day one. So mm-hmm. that would be more fun to talk about. And maybe we can get Bowman on that uh, on that one. And then I we bet can- he
1: he'd love that one.
0: We can stay off of the hard politics stuff and just talk about political branding and even have some examples to talk about what's good and what's bad. That'd be even more fun.
1: (laughs) I used to – I did this before. Once I started working in politics again, it got a little bit iffy, but I used to rate people's logos, and everybody (laughs) loved that except for, like, the people's logos I was rating. And the designers, they didn't love that as much. So Dude, um, we'll do that. So you hear that, Ben, we're going to create a safe space for you to come in here and talk with us, keep it limited topics, you know, all that. So Brian, anywhere else you want people to find you besides at Brian G Iverson on Twitter? Uh,
0: that's really kind of the only place where I do my political work. You know, I have a Facebook account, but it always seems like, you know, I try to keep that for family stuff and those sort of things. And Instagram always is just for me watching reels. <laughs> so I don't really post <laughs> exactly anything on it. there, exactly. But it. Uh, yeah, just uh, Brian G. Iverson at uh, on Twitter or X these days. Yeah. But uh, that's probably where I'm at.
1: People can send you a DM there, and if they need to, if they need more information about. You you, really happy. Don't to. be a creeper, people. Calm, calm uh, down. I mean, so, I know it's hard. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's hard. Well, thanks for joining us, Brian. I, I appreciate your time.
0: And it, how about this for the last mm-hmm. plug? I would say is if you want to run for office, mm-hmm. let me know. I'll point you in the right direction
1: there you go. You've got, you've you've got yourselves a contact and, uh, you know, uh, if he really likes you, he'll, you'll hire him on as, his, as a consultant. So.
0: Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> you
1: you've already got too many clients. Is that the problem?
0: Yeah. Happy new year, everybody. <laughs> How about that? We'll see you in short session.
1: Yeah. It's, sounds good.